Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Science Montessori and Parenting Podcast, otherwise known as the SMP Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Flora Shaw, and I'm the founder, lead editor, and writer at White Paper Press, the publisher of the Montessori White Papers. Here at SMP, we discuss the intersections of science, Montessori, and parenting. And if you're not yet a member of the SMP Facebook group, which is very quickly growing in size, be sure to look us up and join in on the conversation. It's a really great place to get interesting information on human development and learning and to get your questions about Montessori, the science behind Montessori, and the science of parenting and how it relates to Montessori answered. In fact, if you pose a question to the SMP Facebook group, it might even be answered here on this very podcast. So I'm really excited about today's episode for two reasons. First, our guest is one of our science advisory editors at White Paper Press. I'm Deborah Budding. Uh, I am a neuropsychologist, which means I uh, study brain-behavior relationships and look at how uh, brain and body function intersects. And my emphasis has always been on um, understanding complex systems and understanding neurodevelopment in particular. So how people become who they are and also how we can help people um, function at their best and support their best function. And for people who have neurodevelopmental differences to find ways to allow them access to their kind of best capabilities. And in addition to her clinical practice, Dr. Budding also has done just a wee bit of publishing. I've, I've co-authored two books. One is Subcortical Structures and Cognition. The other is um, uh, ADHD as a Model for Brain-Behavior Relationships. Dr. Budding also co-authored a white paper with me entitled Born to Move, The Link Between Movement and Cognition, which you can find in volume two of the Montessori White Papers. In fact, you can find the white papers and links to both of Dr. Budding's books at our website at whitepaperpress.us. So the other reason I'm excited about today's podcast is that Dr. Budding and I discuss what I think, in any case, is the reason all children should have access to Montessori education. We know that Montessori is good at developing executive functions, but the reason it's good at it is because Montessori takes a bottom-up sensory motor approach to development rather than a top-down approach, which is what conventional education is still using. And today, Dr. Budding introduces us to the vertical model of the brain. This model looks at the subcortical structures involved in executive functions rather than just the frontal cortex. And this is important to understand because, well, we humans, we seem to venerate our frontal cortex. That's the area that's long been considered the quote-unquote executive and executive functioning. And it's thought to be the control center for our behaviors and cognitions. But really, it's just one part of a very complex system that includes subcortical structures that are also key to good executive functioning. The vertical model essentially views a brain as being born to move rather than born to think. Thinking actually evolved out of our need to engage in complex movements in the environment. And so automatic and coordinated movements, they're key components to effective executive functioning. But when I was first learning about neuroscience in school and working in a neuroscience lab, I was learning about the brain from a corticocentric perspective. So the vertical model, this is really a perception shift. Well, at least for me anyway. Okay, so now we're going to get into our discussion, but before we get into actually talking about the vertical model of the brain, Dr. Budding is first going to explain what we mean by executive functions. Okay, so a question a lot of people ask is, what is executive function? It's a term that gets thrown around a lot. 
It's a term that gets used a lot by people. And it's one of those things kind of like packing peanuts where we just throw it out and everybody has an assumption that we all mean the same thing. Um, but that isn't really necessarily the case. So um, I use the term executive function almost in its sort of broadest possible form, which is um, whatever allows an organism, a living being, to um, independently direct their own behavior in their environments. So to be independent and to um, to independently direct behavior is is the most important aspect of executive function. Now, I, I love this definition of executive function because it's really simple, right? And it's applicable to everyday behavior, whereas I, f- I feel like that generally executive function has been defined in a lot of by a lot of um, different parts. Partly that's for the for the purpose of those of us who have to study it or try to explain it. M- making it more modular makes it more digestible and puts it into smaller pieces, but it also tends to then fractionate our thinking about it and to keep us from um, looking at it as, as a much more complex and um, subtle kind of the system than it is. And uh, the tendency also tends to be to focus on more kind of top-down, deliberate, controlled aspects of executive function that are important, but it tends to leave out the more um, uh, more body-based, physiological, arousal kind of automatic behaviors that also go into how a person is able to manage their environment. Um, this gets left out a lot, and then people wonder why when they attempt to quote-unquote train executive function in a very top-down, content-oriented way that it doesn't seem to work very well necessarily or consistently. Okay, so let's talk about that top-down perspective because I, I meant, as I mentioned in my uh, introduction, that's sort of that was the p- perspective I was trained in when I was first studying science. You know, yeah, 15, 17 years ago, whenever it was. Um, so that that perspective, it's very it's very modular and it's focused on thinking. Yes. Your brain model. Well, it's not. Well, mine, it's not yours, but the one that I advocate for. The one that you advocate for, right? The vertical model. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. What's the difference? So, um, so my focus tends to be more on a sensory motor approach to neurodevelopment and a vertically organized look at brain development and brain function. Okay, um, and, and that's based on starting from the position that we have brains so that we can move, and that if we didn't need to move, we wouldn't really need to have a brain or nervous system. Um, and that the ability to think and plan and reason has been a lovely side effect of developing better and better ways to move and adapt to our environment. And, and this is um, Daniel Wolpert has a very well-known TED Talk where he talks about the real reason for brains and does a much better job of describing this process than I could. Um, so I would direct people to go take, take a look at that. But, but essentially, um, there's, if you take a sensory motor approach to development and you think about the importance of movement and about sensory regulation, then you also have a lot more um, leeway to think about how do you help somebody learn to adapt to their environments and be flexible and to be forward thinking and to be um, more independent, basically. That if 
if you look at the brain as having kind of two, and this is a, a very much a simplification, but if you if you look at having kind of two interacting systems, okay, and the brain actually has multiple multiple systems, but but one way you can simplify it just to be able to think about it is thinking about deliberate behavior that you are that's deliberately controlled, cognitively controlled. You stop and think. You do it consciously. And the other being more automatic and unconscious and that is sort of driven more on a physiological level and more on a habit level. And we're constantly interacting with, with the environment using these systems. And it's adaptive to have both. So, you know, organisms that operate more purely on the automatic side of things can work very quickly and adapt very quickly to things, but they don't have a lot of flexibility. And they're not able to do a lot of out-of-the-box problem solving. Um, but if you're completely reliant on more deliberate problem solving and stopping and thinking, um, you're dead before you can decide what to do, right? It's like, oh, is that, is that a snake or a stick? Too late. Right. Right? So, um, so being able to have interacting systems that let you, as needed, alternate between doing things more automatically and more deliberately. And in a, in a given moment, we're going to be alternating between those things. I mean, if you think about driving a car, um, when you first learn how to drive a car, right, it's like hard to get out of your driveway. You have to wait, I turn the key, wait, I have to move the stick this way. Everything is very deliberate and you have to think about it a lot. But as you become more adept and practiced in it, that becomes automatic. However, when you're driving down the freeway, and something flies in front of you, you have to address that and, and move around it. So you're always going to be alternating between more automatic and, and more deliberate kinds of, of interaction, right? Mm -hmm. um, and different people have kind of a different wiring that emphasizes one or the other. Some people automate more readily, some people don't. And knowing that, especially if you're looking from an educational perspective, if you know something about a person's kind of bottom-up regulation, then you also know how you can help put them into a position where they're going to be more ready to learn and more able to apply the content that they're being given, right? Right. So it's, it's about content and process or about content and, and application or about knowing and doing. So, okay, so let's talk about from an educational perspective. So what you're, what I'm hearing you say is that uh, the interaction of these two systems, the more conscious, deliberate thinking system and the more implicit, automatic mm -hmm. system that we have. Uh, if we are thinking about development in terms of being born to move rather than being born to think, uh, from an educational perspective then, what does that mean? If we're thinking about building the brain, so to speak, from mm -hmm. the bottom up, right? what does that mean from an educational perspective? Why... Is this so important for educators to understand? Well, one is we're lifelong learners. So the, our quote-unquote education begins at birth. And learning how to interact with the environment begins at birth. So formal education is a, a part of that process, but it extends outside of formal education as well. Um, but also understanding um, a, a child's need to move. Um, also impacts how you go about teaching them how to do stuff, right? So 
you know, what is the point of learning your multiplication tables, right? Is it just to learn the multiplication tables or is there a larger context? Is there a larger application that you're bothering to learn this information for? So when you, one of the things I like about Montessori education is that there's an understanding from the very beginning that that content or, or knowledge that's being taught is in a context and is to be applied in various ways. And that, so one of the things you learn is not just how you um, hold a pencil, but also when do you put down that pencil to talk to the student next to you? When is it appropriate to do that? When does it make sense to do that? Um, when you're holding a pencil and you want to use it to stab somebody's eye out, how do you not do that? Right. right? That's so, a very useful yes, skill. Right. Tool. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and so um, there's the, the whole contextual piece of training knowledge, you know, and, and understanding that movement is essential for everybody's health and well-being, right? Like you can't, people are dying because they're literally sitting at desks all day long without moving. It's bad for your health. We need to move. Well, but, you know, you know, conventional education, they they have come up with a solution to this, which is they are uh, purchasing desks that have stationary bikes and that sort of thing attached to them, right? So they're so they do they hook that up to the electrical system so that they're generating energy. Well, so they're actually that would be a really <laughs> clever idea. I don't think they've gotten that far, but I, so there's a recognition that movement is important, but it's interesting because they're they are um, making the assumption that the uh, the repetition of the same movement. You know, like right. repeating so, the same over and over again. So the, the key here is adaptive movement. Okay. So um, and there was a big research article that came out recently by Daniel Simons and, and company about brain training, right? And all these right. brain training programs. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and he was very clear, and they were very clear that, well, you know, these repetitive brain training programs are great at teaching you how to do great on those brain training programs, but they don't do very well at generalizing. And so... The, the part of the idea of understanding learning from a more broad-based physiological perspective is um, training a kind of a rich array of internal models that you can choose from to then anticipate what your environment is demanding from you and you've got a good toolkit, right? Mm -hmm. So if you repetitively train one thing, you'll be very good at that one thing, but then what if you need to do something that isn't that one thing, mm -hmm. right? So, um, and and you know, aerobic activity is, is useful and riding a bike can be great with getting your heart rate up and doing that aerobic activity, but you need to have a bigger and more diverse toolkit of, of movements that you're engaging in for it to really be effective and adaptive and, and more generalizable. Well, and, and this is why uh, I mean, one of the many things I love about Montessori education is that the, starting at birth, the environments are uh, very rich in sensory motor materials uh, that get in, increasingly complex and more of them as the children uh, get older. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of direct training of, of movements, like the development of the pin, pincer grasp. Right. 
So before Dr. Montessori, the puzzles didn't have knobs on them that the children could grasp with their index finger and their right. thumb. Uh, so there's development of that. But there's a lot of uh, implicit, indirect training that's happening as well. Right. Uh, the one, actually, that one example that we use in our paper that we wrote, the white paper, Movement and Cognition, uh, the Born to Move paper, gives the example of w- learning to wash a table. So a three-year-old or a two-and-a-half-year-old will learn to wash a table. In addition to you know, the 17 or however many steps are involved in that sequencing sort of process, uh, there's also this... Uh, grand gro- gross motor uh, circular movement that right. occurs that is implicit to uh, learning cursive writing, right? For instance, right? So there's a there, and I have not found any other pedagogy that has this kind of very purposeful sensory motor training from such an early age so that right. all of these movements, these complex movements, can become automatic that then enable the child to do to engage in more complex behaviors right because you're you're scaffolding right exactly you're you're developing simpler motor programs that then you can add on to right and the more you can make the simpler stuff automatic the more you can then build onto it and it's one of those things that we tend to take for granted and even within Montessori education this is taken for granted that it's sort of implicitly understood that this unfolds but for kids with neurodevelopmental differences it doesn't necessarily unfold in the same kind of way where you can just make an implicit right understanding that it's going to happen that a lot of these kids then need more explicit direction to, to be explicitly shown how you do this movement and right. then they can learn to make it more automatic but everybody's different in terms of how readily they automate things right and that's i think that that's uh, that that is so true so what you're talking about there too is that for, you know for a neurotypical child yes the the implicitness uh, of the of the environment it, the, their it's brains absorbing. will get it just they'll just absorb it it will become embodied you know so to right. speak right but for a child that isn't neurotypical there's just through some pointing things out to the child, making the connections, yeah, mm-hmm. a little more scaffolding. That really, to me, is a, is is scaffolding the connection between the mind and the uh, the the sorry the 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 mind and the body, right? And the, right? the body and the environment, and the body and right. the environment. Okay, so this is where I have to interrupt because, of course, as sometimes happens, we had some technical difficulties. So the next part of this conversation is going to seem a little disconnected because it's going to dive into a myth of the brain, a myth that you've probably seen me post about or heard me talk about. But then our conversation goes into implicit bias in education, and then we come back around to this idea of making things a little more explicit, this idea of scaffolding in a Montessori environment for children who are not neurotypical. So stick with the conversation because it's really interesting. I could not edit any of this out, couldn't make it any shorter. So just give it a go. So one of the kind of great myths about the brain that, that endure is this idea of um, your brain development is fixed by the age of what, three or five or whatever. And that if you have a impoverished or traumatic upbringing that this somehow permanently damages your brain and people sell this notion showing these brain scans of, of, of oh look at the horrible impact of poor nutrition or of trauma or whatever on brain development and it isn't that it 
it's not that it isn't true, but I think it tends to be used then as a scare tactic and as a way to kind of sell products instead of uh, understanding that everything that we do impacts our brain, it impacts our function, right? My picking up a coffee cup changes my brain. So um, I, I think there's a way that sometimes um, people, and maybe with, without bad intentions, but, but want to kind of sway public opinion about early intervention or about uh, a particular intervention model they're selling, will use this you know, brain imaging technology as a way to show how, you know, use this thing I'm selling or else, wow, look how terrible your brain's going to be and then you're really screwed. Instead of viewing things as we're, we're, we're incredibly plastic and we're responsive to the environment and we're part of what we do is we absorb our environments and we develop habits of managing our environments. And so part of education, in my opinion, and part of, of intervention is understanding that there are both conscious and implicit or unconscious aspects to the environment. And one of the things that we tend to really um, minimize is is implicit bias and how much our expectations and our assumptions influence how we view other people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a particular issue within the United States in terms of sort of the, the white, cis, heterosexual, privileged viewpoint of things is taken as being centered. And anything that doesn't fit within that is then, quote unquote, abnormal, right? And that impacts how we view cultural differences. And, and a lot of times we're not even aware of it, right, unless we're made aware of it. So one of the things that I find to be really important is to have a very um, – kind of representative and diverse teaching staff and therapeutic staff who can bring their different experiences in so that everybody gets to benefit from them, right? That, that we tend to, we all operate from our own personal subjective lens. We have to. Does a fish know it's in water? This is just, it, that's just how human beings are. And the way we overcome that is to have an outside source point out the disconnect between our assumption or our belief, our bias, and this other piece of information. Well, but what about this piece of information? And then we have to go, oh, okay, consider that. And then by doing so, we're broadening our experience base and we're also broadening the um, the underlying programming, right? The, the models, the internal models that we carry around that we then project onto the world in terms of our expectations. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I definitely think that the the environment we grow up in is important and plays a role, but there's also a lot of literature out there that shows that parenting differences matter a lot less than genetics. Oh, yeah, you for know? sure. And, and, and I think that there's this way that, that we end up, you know, wanting to be awesome parents and awesome educators and, and, um, and, and lose sight of well, what, you know, what, what are the needs of the, the individual or the community we're dealing with and what do they want? Because a lot of times we go by theory, right? We go by theory and what fits into a certain model and then we try to superimpose that onto a child or onto a community because that's what the numbers say, right? That's mm-hmm. what the model says. Um, but the actual experiential base, the actual, you know, embodied experience is different. Mm-hmm. Right. And it doesn't always make room. 
And then the other thing is because of the way that research is interpreted and dispersed in the media, it, I think it reinforces the deterministic view of development that then becomes part of our implicit bias. Right, and it becomes self-reinforcing. Um, exactly. And and it can become, you know, it, it, there's cultural bias. We have this idea that science is objective, quote unquote, and that therefore the people who do science are objective. But people are people and people have biases. And um, and we need to own it and we need to address it and, and, and deal with it because there's there's there are a lot of different ways to approach content, right? There are a lot of different ways to get to the same endpoint. And um, if we're operating in a system that only acknowledges and accepts one particular way of doing it, then that limits the ways of, of approaching things from a different angle, right? It's like the toys you can only play with one way, right? Um, you can you know, if you have to get shoved into a silo and do things in one particular way, that is, that's not conductive. That's it's like, it doesn't help people develop independent problem solving skills, thinking outside the box, being creative. Well, I will say this. So in Montessori, we do early on that they, they are, the children are to work with the materials as shown. Yeah. But that's only. But you only, have to start somewhere. But you have to start somewhere. Exactly. You have to start somewhere. That's and right. And then you move out and, of it. And then, and then what happens. forget it, it. Yeah, exactly. And then what happens, the latter part of the primary program, which is uh, the primary program is ages three to six, the children will start looking at the materials in a different way and they'll start being more creative you know, with those materials and, and so, but generally it is initially, but to develop those uh, automatic movements and those automatic right. skills initially. Um, but, and so this is also, this brings up an important point um, as to why, again, that I think that Montessori education should be accessible to all children um, of all backgrounds. Um, and that is it, the, the conventional education as it exists is, is primarily a, middle-class institution yes uh with its own biases right and um and it's industrial it's and it's, it's industrial industrial um you know putting pegs in holes and very mechanistic right in its approach right but there's been so much work done uh in Montessori that unfortunately doesn't get as much uh public press as it as it probably should where they, it's it's not an imperialistic way of interacting with communities, right? Unless um, of it's handled in an imperialistic way by individual people, which again, you can never take the. We're all people. We're all we people. All have our biases, right? And so we've got the rubric of of what we're trying to do, but we can't take ourselves out of the equation, right? So, you but know, but there the but there are programs, uh, you know. I'm thinking of specific schools and and programs where they have gone into the community. You know, Montessorians have gone into the community and said, tell us what you need. Right. Tell us about you. Tell us about, you know, we, you know, we have something we think we can offer, but let's talk about how we can work together and what this looks like. Right. And, and it's a bottom-up um, approach it's as a, opposed it to It is a bottom-up, exactly, which is so interesting, right? Because it's when we're talking about the brain, we're talking about looking at it, you know, more vertically, right? And, and, yep. and um the, the bottom-up development, but the same thing in culturally or within our um, uh, within our communities, you know, looking at things rather than taking a top-down approach, we need to think about things more, I think, from, from the bottom up that engages more people and uh, 
then enables us to get past issues that could potentially occur because of things like implicit bias and that sort of thing, right? Right. Well, the, the one, if you come from a perspective where you just assume that, that you're operating under a set of implicit biases, right, and that you just, you know this, right, and then that means that you are open to having people who aren't you, because it has to be somebody who isn't you, because you right. can't see it, you know, point that out to you so you can go, oh, right, okay, and then make some adjustments. Right. I mean, that's... That's called civilization. That's called society. Right. That's called how you have for participatory democracy so right. that people can operate with an understanding that not everybody is like them, right. that they're not the center of the universe, and that there are lots of different ways to go about doing things, right? Right. Um, but that also, um, again, when you look at things from a sensory motor perspective, if somebody has some regulatory challenges, if things don't go as they expect really throws them off, then knowing that means that you make some accommodations for that and you you make some shifts to helping them tolerate things mm -hmm. better, right? Yes. So one of the challenges I, I see in, in is somebody who sees kids with neurodevelopmental difficulties is navigating in a school environment, whether it's a traditional school, a Montessori school, whatever, how do you how do you navigate the differences in a child's bottom-up regulation abilities? Because the answer is not, oh, you know, Johnny pitched a fit because um, he didn't, you know, he, he couldn't have things happen the way he wanted. It's not, well, go stand in the corner, Johnny, you're punished. And it's also not, well, you know, okay, other kids that he stomped on their feet, you know, that's okay because Johnny was upset, right? Right. Right. So so you <laughs> yeah. just you just make room for, for, for his lack of regulation, right? Right. You you there has to be that middle ground where you understand that the 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 intersection between an individual and a group and try to support an individual's ability to self-regulate while also understanding that how we behave, how we manage ourselves impacts other people and exactly. that and that we need to care about that. And and again, to me this is something that's always been sort of implicit in Montessori education is that it 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 teaches kids just through experience that you are part of a community and that that what you do matters to other people right absolutely um and to me what it could do even better is to add an explicit piece of that to kids who don't have uh the same ability to just make things automatic right right that so that you can add the explicit piece because so much of it is done just intuitively Right, and I think so. It, it, I I love what you're saying because it's very it's all it's really what I hear you saying is it's it's all about the gray. Right, right? it's not a black, it's not a or white sort of situation of you know um, this or that. And in in Montessori, you know, our our goal uh, as Montessori educators is to is to get children to to guide them towards. Uh, independence, right? So and interdependence and, and interdependence for sure. It, it absolutely weaves a systems perspective of the world. It, it, as you were pointing out, they see themselves as part of a larger community. They see themselves as impacting that community it, through their choices and their behaviors, and so on and so forth. Um, but we, it, if the view is that it always has to come from within the child as opposed to whatever, you know, for some children, they may need a little more scaffolding in some way to get them to the point of independence. So it can't, it's not always just, um, like you said, they're not always just going to, to quote unquote, get it right. implicitly. We do need to be more specific. Right. And that's where the, the art of 
of teaching right. comes in. Well, and that's where adding a sensor, in my opinion, obviously, adding uh, coming from a more sensory motor development approach is so helpful because if you're only looking at executive function and training, quote unquote, executive function from a top down, um, deliberate, um, controlled cognitive approach, there's a whole realm of function that you're going to be missing. Right. right. And and the bottom up piece is hugely important. And again, I think in it tends to be something that that is so assumed in a Montessori environment that sometimes people forget to really pay attention and think about how important that piece is. Right. So this reminded me of and because I think we need to to give the listeners a, a very explicit kind of concrete example mm-hmm. of what, what we're talking about here. So I'll, I will share, I, I recently um, saw uh, a friend of ours who's a music therapist. Uh, uh, I was had the opportunity to go watch her uh, with her, her clients who'd consented to having an observer. And um, there was uh, one client that she had who was really having a hard time coming into the room. And, but it was really interesting. So, uh, what he conveyed through his, so he's non-speaking, mm-hmm. uh, and he conveyed through his typing was unbelievably amazing. And basically he said he wanted to communicate to me, I know it looks like, based on my not being able to come into the room, that I don't want to be here, but I really do. Yep. And that was such an example of someone who is not neurotypical, mm-hmm. who who is not fully in control of his body. Right. And so these are the kinds of things that we're, we're, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. So it could, we could so easily make the interpretation, oh, he's just being defiant or he doesn't want to be here or, you know, project all kinds of interpretations that are completely incorrect without understanding from a sensory motor perspective that if he could be in control of his body and these movements, he would. Exactly. And that's, in fact, why he's coming to get therapy. Right. This music therapy, so that he can gain that control because of the plasticity of the brain. Exactly. And also the idea of voluntary control over movement. Exactly. um, Training flexibility, right? Because we, we need to be able to flexibly move between automatic things and things that are more higher order controlled. And, and it's also why, um, you know, when we try to do assessments or we try to do interventions that are purely computer-based, they're very limited. I mean, I use some computer interfaces in, in my uh, assessments. I, I think, you know, I'm a big video game player. I, I do think that, that electronic stuff and computer stuff can be useful. However, um, there is a limited movement and behavioral repertoire that gets accessed by that. And again, if you think about adaptive movement, um, that's, that's both fine and gross motor function. There's communication, right? And how if you are somebody who has some difficulty using spoken language to communicate, how, you know, how, how can you get yourself understood by other people? Right. Right. And so... Um, you know, if you can do something like the Wisconsin card sort, which is, you know, matching cards into various categories and using feedback, that's useful. But 
how is that going to translate into going to the grocery store and picking out the stuff that you need and putting it in your cart and navigating the aisles and going in line and standing in the right place in line and going through checkout and interacting appropriately with the person who's the cashier, you know, it, it's much more com- complicated. Right. And, and so it's much more difficult in certain ways to, um, if you're doing assessment in terms of educational outcome, right, if you're going to look at something more than just um, content, right, like standardized testing, for example, who's going to, is going to measure academic content, what are the ways that you can then measure well, what about application skills? What about um, your ability to navigate your environment independently? Right. right. And some of that is going to be um, top down, right? But some of it's also going to be the bottom up. Right. And again, you know, that, you know, that saying, a man with a toothache cannot fall in love, right? Like if you're acutely agitated or, or disrupted, you can't access the, the skill set that right. you're supposed to use well and i think it is so and also if you are deeply agitated or distracted essentially by your own body mm-hmm. it's it's not necessarily because you're having um you know psychological emotional issues no. right it's it's that you are literally having sensory motor issues right uh, but that's the other thing is that we tend to then project these you know these uh, psychological, emotional issues onto the children. Oh, what does it mean when they're acting this way? They must be harboring anger because of something that happened with their mother or whatever right. it is. Well, and it ends and up a lot of projecting. On, a lot on of projecting. But maybe it's just that you know they haven't um, they haven't had the opportunity to, for instance, develop and strengthen their core, exactly. and they are. They can barely hold themselves up, and they're exhausted because of that. Yep. And uh, you know, maybe we need to look at those types of things. Right. And there's, and this is again why I think Montessori education. If we are, if we can talk about it from this perspective and advocate from this perspective, it, it's. I mean, there is no other pedagogy that has, first of all, the rich sensory motor environment that we have, but we also have all of this flexibility, right. you know, as well. So that, you know, we can give, we have time. We have this precious thing of time in our environments with these work cycles that are, you know, three, can be three hours long yes. uh, that allow children to work on movements that could actually strengthen their core or work on the automaticity of, of uh, fine motor movements and, and things and all of these sorts of things. It's a very therapeutic environment in and of itself. Right. I mean, you can talk about a, a, a concept such as inhibition skills, right? But what what is that, right? What is what is inhibition? And if somebody is having trouble um, withholding an automatic behavior, well, is that because they get overstimulated and they're overshooting? Is it because they tend to undershoot and they're not sort of paying attention to, to what the cues are? Mm-hmm. There's there's all sorts of, of contributing factors that can go into a construct that cognitive people tend to use in a, uh, a global way. Right. Right? So we can say, well, Johnny has troubles with inhibition, right? And, you know, well, okay, so what does that mean, right? Right. Um, and and trouble with inhibition in one circumstance may be very different than trouble with inhibition in another circumstance, depending on what the demands are. Exactly. 
right? So, so taking a more vertically organized approach, and it's not a vertical system instead of other, you know, kinds of horizontal ways. It's in addition to. It's not right. a replacement. It's sort of adding another uh, layer, right? Adding adding a third dimension, so to speak, right? And um, and understanding that we operate uh, in a in an ongoing active manner. It's why complex systems uh, are so useful to consider mm -hmm. because we're always engaging in a changing relationship with our environment. Mm -hmm. And human brains are not static. Individual people are not static. Um, we do have, you know, I'm no amount of therapy is going to make me have brown eyes. Right. Right. Like there's certain genetic things that are kind of set, right? But there are also things that are more just settings and then in terms of how we, how the environment behaves, how we behave, things get turned on and off. Right, right. So, so there's certain things are deterministic, but a lot of things aren't. A lot of things aren't, right. And a lot of things are amenable to, to systemic change if you look at it from a more um, global and systems perspective as opposed to one that's very modular, very binary. Um, and we do tend to fall back into operating in, in binaries. Oh, we absolutely do. You know, I and, just think it's easier for us as humans. This It's easier to understand. But certainly what what I see again is all all the good stuff is actually in the middle. Right. Right. That's where it's not it's it's so rarely either or. It's right. it's all of and the you know, context is a is a big issue. There's so many things, there are so many variables that are in the middle. You know, so you can right. never say this one situation will work all of the time. Right. I mean, you know? it, it's, it doesn't even work like like the same thing isn't necessarily going to work for me in every situation, right? right? So it's not even differences between individuals. It's also state of mind, state of physiological arousal, et cetera, within an individual person across different circumstances. Right. To me, it's so important for people within the Montessori community to get training and understanding of sensory motor differences because um, the, sometimes if you have a, like too concrete an understanding of what normalization is, for example, that, that there's a way that you can fail to understand how you can accommodate to a differing neurology. Right. Right. And how you can, like, it, there again, if, if there's an assumption that there's a natural progression of sensory motor development, if somebody doesn't have a typical developmental pattern and you're not trained to understand what you can do to support that, then there's the, well, you know, that, that child is not appropriate for the environment, quote, unquote, right? Right. Instead of going, well, what, you know, what, how do we understand the differences? And that's why having a person like Peggy around, for example, our, our colleague, um, who can go in and look at things from a sensory motor perspective instead of this kind of top-down cognitive perspective, because with, with early development, that, that top-down cognitive stuff is just not as relevant. Right. Right. And yeah. so you're really trying to help the, the bottom up piece so that there's more room for the the top down the more deliberate the higher level cognitive reasoning all of the all of the stuff that that Montessori is known for encouraging right that that stuff develops on top of a foundation of kind of a regulated 
sensory arousal network, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so if you've got somebody who, who doesn't regulate consistently or in typical ways, it's not, well, we just have to, to give them more content or you know, right. repeat it more times. It's like, well, no, let's figure out how we get them sort of get their bodies in a place where they can navigate it and then they can access the content. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, that, uh, so that's a great segue to the, to letting our listeners know that actually we will be having, um, I'll be having Peggy Schaefer on, um, to actually talk about the, the vertical brain in action, Mm -hmm. uh, and talk about some of these issues. And the, the goal for white paper press is actually to develop, uh, some webinars and some training modules that can train Montessori educators more uh, to give them more understanding. I mean, they, they all understand that movement is really important, but I think that uh, if we can give more concrete things that they can do in the environment, uh, which is already amazing as it is, but just some little things that they can do. Some, some little additional scaffolding Some little adi- additional scaffolding that is not, uh, it, 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 is, it doesn't take away from the pedagogy at all it's just really it's all, going it's to truly additive it's pr- in my and, opinion, it's and additive. in and it's it will uh help those children who are not neurotypical and you know yes. i i know that this is definitely a need in our community so we'll be working with that right and it also assists with um with cross-cultural kinds of applications too mm-hmm. right with understanding you know, different cultures also have different expectations in terms of sensory motor development as well and mm-hmm. sensory regulation. And and so the, the the larger toolkit we have in terms of understanding um, what a behavior means, like literally. <laughs> and sometimes a behavior means nothing. Exactly. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's exactly. Sometimes a behavior really doesn't have a meaning attached with it. Like not all behavior is meant to communicate. Like one of the things yes. we tend to do is to be very focused on, you know, behavior as communication. And knowing oh, and knowing autistic people actually has helped me tremendously in understanding that, you know, not so much, not always. Sometimes sometimes people just do behaviors because they feel good and yeah. they want to do them. Yeah, right? that's right. And they're I, not really meant to, to communicate anything at all. Well, that's the thing. I would, you know, when when I was ahead of school, I would have parents ask me a lot, uh, you know, but why is my child doing this? Why is my child doing this? We want to attach meaning. We need to know why around everything. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times my re- response would be, you know, we, we, we have to be okay with not knowing why. And in fact, just figuring out how to help the child manage that behavior now. That's all we can do. Exactly. In a way that is respectful. Right. Well, and, and also, for example, um, uh, you know, with, with I see a lot of kids on the autism spectrum and work with a lot of families who have kids on the spectrum. And one of the things that comes up all the time is repetitive behaviors. It's like my kids flapping their hands, right? I'm like, so? All right. So uh, this bothers you. Okay. Let's talk about why it bothers you, right? right. And then, but then let's also talk about, and, and talk, then you talk to the person who's flapping their hands, right? And you're like, so, dude, why are you flapping your hands? Like, I like it. I'm like, okay. Or I'm anxious. Or like, it different could be so many different, have different purposes. Yeah. And the more you sort of respect a person's physiological needs, the more you can also say, okay, but um, let's say you're going to go into this situation and the cultural expectation in that situation is that you don't do that. Yeah. Right. So, you know, let's work on helping them understand you and accept you. But let's also think, are there some things you can do given the cultural expectations you're going to be walking into that suit your needs 
right? But that also um, can can fit into what the expectations are in that setting, and to do it in a way that doesn't um, devalue what your needs are, right? Right? Because there's always a um, kind of a balance between individual needs and larger society needs or cultural expectations, and you know we have to be mindful of that, and you know how many of our cultural expectations are oppressive mm-hmm. in nature, right? Mm-hmm. Versus constructive, and you know I am in favor of streetlights, for example. You know I think that it's you know stop signs are useful, right? right? There are certain laws and, and rules and regulations that are pro-social, right? Exactly. But there are other ones that are just about like I don't want to have to deal with your right. Pardon my French, right? I don't like. Just do what you're supposed to do because I don't want to have to deal with something that's out of my expectation. So what I need is compliance. Right. 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 And and to me, one of the things, I, you know, again, I'm no expert in Montessori, but one of the things I've always liked about my experience of Montessori is that the the emphasis is always on the individual being a member of society and being an active member of society and um, participating with other people in a way that is respectful to themselves and others both. Yeah. Right. And that the idea is not supposed to be compliance. No. But uh, kind of an, an interdependence where there's room for for difference, but there's also limits in terms of what what are the ways we engage with others that are accepted versus not accepted. Exactly. Right? Um, there's, you know, when, when somebody says they don't like things being politically correct, I'm like, well, what does that mean? Right. right. Does that mean that, that I should be able to insult and degrade you and you shouldn't get upset about it? Or, you know, or am I going to um, not be um, oppressed? Right. Mm-hmm. So in, in being able to allow kids and people with space to think about those things and process it and address it is is central to allowing ourselves to have a participatory democracy. I mean, well, exactly. I mean, isn't that the point of, of like, if we're going to bother having kids and raising them to try to help encourage them to be able to participate in the world in a way that's constructive? Well, and so this is why, uh, you know, the, the children in Montessori, they get time to practice all of this, right? right? As opposed to, okay, we're going to send you to school for 12 years where it's really just about compliance. Right. Okay. And, compliance uh, and, and taking content. These, compliance and content, take these tests, blah, blah, blah. And uh, then I need you to be effective citizens in the world and to, um, you know, move our democracy forward. Well, right. how do you, okay, but wait, what? Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> you know, you've been, I've been you in an environment. raise somebody with an expectation exactly. that, wow, you know, you're, you're part of a group and you, individual little snowflake, you are important. But you know what? You're, you're surrounded by lots of other individual important little snowflakes. Right. And y'all have to figure out a way to make room for people who aren't you. And who aren't like you. Yes, exactly. But yet the the conventional education, because it has to be so efficient, it's also designed so that everybody's competing against one another. Right. Right. And so it's not not about developing that community. You are in competition. Right. And not in a healthy competition. No. Because you and I were talking about this. Like healthy competition can mm-hmm. be very useful oh, where you're like, okay, come exciting. on, come on, mm-hmm. sister, do your best. Come on, let's see, step yeah, it up, right? you make each other better. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, you know, my winning is dependent on your losing, right? Exactly. And if you win, then this is a shame to me because then I've lost. Right. 
right? So I have to always win because, you know, losing is shameful. Right. And it's not about um, practicing things together to develop um, higher skill levels. Right. It's it's more about, um, uh, again, it's more of a, that in that compliance mode, it's about demonstrating your superiority over another person. Mm-hmm. And that's, that kind of emphasis does not tend to promote people being kind to each other in general. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. All right. Well, um, do you have any final words for us on the vertical brain model? Or um, just, just uh, it's it's one of those things where I think if you can start orienting yourself to think differently, it will. Um, everything else falls into place pretty nicely. It, it, it really is a way of just changing your viewpoint just slightly and everything comes into view in a, in a more constructive way, this, this, this way. So, and also if you haven't read the white paper press paper, it's the nice thing about white paper press, one of the nice things is that they're, they're short and easily digestible. They're not 1500 page tomes where with lots of jargon, they're, they're short and sweet and they have great um, links to original research, um, but they're very digestible, thought-provoking um, articles. So get out and, and pick them up. Well, thank you for that. Yes, and thank you for being one of our advisory editors. <gasps> My pleasure. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.